Thanks, Alicia. Uh, let's pause again and pray. God, thank you for uh, now the opportunity we have to um, get into your word together. Uh, again, an unusual thing to do in our culture to not only come to a space like this on a Sunday, but then to sit and listen and, and meditate on words that came from a man 2,000 years ago. So we need your spirit to open our hearts to what uh, Paul, through the spirit, is saying in this passage. Thank you that your spirit is alive in this word, um, that it's active, that it's actively engaging our hearts, that it's opening us up to new sources of revelation, uh, ways we might um, take steps of faith, both today and then the coming days. So we ask for that, God, in this time ahead. Praying in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, so I don't think I need to remind anybody, especially the parents in the room, that Wednesday was Halloween. Um, all of us who are parents are, are, have been, like, since Wednesday, nursing our kids off, like, this candy high, and then trying, making critical life decisions about what to do with that 15-pound bag of candy that's lurking in our kitchen. We all know who the candy's for, so just wink. What's your, what's your favorite candy, right? Well, that should have been, I get to know, what's that? Twix, I would see, and least favorite, Twizzler, right? Like, who still gives a Twizzler out? I could go on a long diatribe about this, but anyway... What we don't often know about Halloween uh, is that the two days following Halloween are Christian holy days. So not holidays, like secular holidays, but Christian holy days, feast days in the Catholic Church. Uh, it's uh, All Saints Day on November 1st, and then All Souls Day on November 2nd, which was Friday. And those two days um, are ancient days. They're, they were set aside, they've been set aside since the very earliest days of the church um, to honor and remember the dead, sort of like that movie Coco, like that's... Dia de los Muertos, but similar idea to like meditate on death and not in this morbid like seancey way, like we're going to talk to the dead now, but um, as a way of honor, honoring the legacy of those who've died, who've come before us, sort of like Hebrews 11, um, and then draw lessons from their lives and consider how we might take steps of faith today. That's kind of what those two days are about in a nutshell. So these two days earlier in the week had me thinking about or going to one of my favorite books of all time called The Book of Dead Philosophers by this guy named Simon Critchley. I keep it by my bedside because it's, it's just such a fascinating, funny read. It's this, sec. It's this book about um, two, 200 of the world's greatest thinkers, philosophers, thinkers, who've already died, but um, and kind of this guy's, med- like, he's musing on mortality and suffering and telling how they died, and it's very winsome. And, and yeah, anyway, so you can imagine me laying in bed reading about people who died and how they died. It's, it's actually kind of, well, we won't go there either, so I could go on a rabbit trail on this. But here's how he begins the book. It's it's very interesting beginning. So this book begins from a simple assumption. What defines human life in our corner of the planet at the present time is not just the fear of death, but an overwhelming terror of annihilation. This is a terror both of the inevitability of our demise with its future prospect of pain and possibly meaningless suffering, and the horror of what lies in the grave other than our body nailed into a box and lowered into the earth to become worm food. We are often led, on the one hand, to deny the fact of death and run headlong into the watery pleasures of forgetfulness, intoxication, and the mindless accumulation of stuff. And then on the other hand, the terror of annihilation leads us blindly into a belief in magical forms of salvation and promises of immortality offered by certain traditional religions and many New Age ones. In stark contrast, he says, to our drunken desire for evasion and escape, 
The ideal philosophical death has such sobering power. As Cicero writes, to philosophize is to learn how to die. And then he goes on, and he says, uh, to philosophize is to learn to have death in your mouth, quoting Montague, I, Montagne. I, that guy's name I can't get right. But um, in, in the words you speak, the food you eat, the drink you imbibe, it, it's in this way that we might begin to confront the terror of annihilation. For it is, finally, the fear of death, listen to this, that enslaves us and leads us toward either temporary oblivion or the, temporary oblivion or the longing for immortality. As Montaigne writes, he who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. This is an astonishing conclusion, that the premeditation of death is nothing less than the forethinking of freedom. The premeditation of death is nothing less than the forethinking of freedom. Seeking to escape death, then, is to remain unfree and run away from ourselves. The denial of death, he says, is the the beginning of self-hatred. And I don't even think this guy's a Christian. But, I mean, you can hear Romans 6 all over that. And, 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 and so why, why that passage other than the obvious cultural ties? Well, Romans 6, if you, if you were to read the whole passage, in fact, the, the section we, we read kind of echoed this. 14 times in just 11 verses, Paul uses the word dead, death, died. And so that's the, the thesis I actually asked Richard, our senior pastor, about if he were preaching to here what might he say to you? And this is what he told me in a little text message. He says, Paul's point, which is central to the whole book, in his opinion, is that we're never solely invited to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. We're invited to union with Christ, and union with Christ means nothing less than dying. Isn't that interesting? Dying to our sins, our personal agendas, our rampant individualism, dying and allowing ourselves to inhabit the mystery of Christ's death by joining him, as Paul says in Philippians 3, in his death, by joining him in his death participating in his death. As Critchley actually says in his book, because he does bring up some Christian philosophers, to be a Christian is to think of nothing else but death. <laughs> to be a Christian, if you're a Christ follower this morning, is to think of nothing else but death, for it is only through a meditation on mortality that the path to salvation can be sought. I don't know, other than Halloween or Hallows, All, Hallows, it's all Saints Day, All Souls Day, if, if you think about death that much. Like, we're, we're a young congregation, and we're pretty far, most of us probably, we feel like we're pretty far away from that time. How many of you are actually thinking actively about your own death? A couple of you are. <laughs> a lot of us are not. And yet, Critchley, Paul, are inviting us to do that. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is, is, you maybe didn't wake up thinking about this this morning. It's sunny outside. You know, it's good. Seahawks are on a wing streak. It's all good. Examine the various ways in which we're being invited to die. We're being invited to die. And each a means by which Paul weaves in um, the new life we experience in Christ to the death with Christ, okay? And we're going to do this by exploring three experiences of Christ's death that are articulated here, each with three key questions, and then each that offers a way to a deeper life with God. So we're going to look at three experiences, three questions, three offers, okay? And um, that feels like a lot, but don't worry, because it's really three things, not nine. So, and here, I'll frame that out, because I gave you some fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin if you're a note-taker. Um, I'll fill in the blanks for you as we go, and let me give you an example. The first one, we're going to look at baptism in verses 3 and 4. And baptism is the experience. So, baptism answers the question, who am I? Baptism answers the question, who am I? And offers a way to a new identity. 
So baptism answers the question, who am I? And then offers the way to a new identity, okay? So baptism is this Greek word, baptizen. So it's actually a, the English word and the Greek word are the same. And it means to be dipped. So I guess when we do communion this morning, you're going to dip some bread. You're kind of baptizing in a way. And, and from the earliest days of the church until now, it's the Christian rite of initiation. That's what it is. It's just initiation into the body of Christ. And it signals, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, it signals and seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the church. Okay? Adoption, cleansing, and commitment. That's what baptism is. So that said, there is a bewildering, I'm just, a bewildering amount of commentary on these two verses, verses 3 and 4. Whether Paul's referring to literal, the literal rite of Christian baptism, or some like early uh, pagan ancient mystical practice that was taking place and that the church was now appropriating. Um, beyond the passage, it gets even more confounding as you read the commentaries, whether baptism should be done by sprinkling or dunking, right? Infants or only adults inside the church sanctuary in a stock tank like we have or in a lake. And, and, and though these are all good debates and good bedtime reading, like seriously, take it from me. Good bedtime reading. I slept really well this week. Um, I'd caution us against getting too wrapped up within those debates because all of them miss the point of what Paul's teaching. The point of what Paul's teaching around baptism and what's the most important thing for us to take home today and what's being articulated is it's not how we're baptized, not whether it's immersion or sprinkling. It doesn't matter. Or whom, children or adults. Paul doesn't ever ever talk about that. or even, or even where. Like, it doesn't matter if it's inside, outside, in a bathtub, in your kitchen sink. It, does, it just doesn't matter. Paul talks about what. That's pretty much it. Three times Paul tells us what, what baptism is for. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 6, he's talking about crucifixion, but it's a, it's a different metaphor. But if you can just imagine, it's the same. We know that our old self was crucified, or you could say baptized with Christ. So do you hear the, what baptism is for there? According to Paul, it's the means by which we're invited to participate in the life of Christ and the, the manner that we receive a new identity in Christ. Okay? Uh, it may look forward in hope or back in sort of uh, celebration, like it could be done to you as you're an infant or done by you as an adult. Church sanctuary on Sunday, Lake Washington, Wednesday afternoon, just, just doesn't matter. Anytime you see someone being baptized, anytime someone's baptized, if you're a follower of Christ, it's a visible reminder of what's most true about you. That's it, what's most true about you. Now, I can hear somebody saying, great, so what? Like, what do, those, what do those words mean? Participation, identity, you use them all the time, Jack around Bethany. They're buzzwords for us. It sounds good. What do they mean on a practical level? So I'm, that's a good question. So I'm glad you asked it. Um, the best analogy I could think of, and I was chatting with Richard about this, is sports. I don't often use sports analogies, but here's an extended one, specifically spectator sports. It's like football, baseball. We had the World Series end this week. Um, for some of us, eh, we don't watch that anymore, right? I'm looking at one specific friend because his team's not winning. <laughs> He's still not smiling at me. Uh, basketball, soccer, any of these sports. Okay, so we're so entrenched in the culture of spectator sports that many of us don't even think about or examine how, um, 
how much we actually identify, how our identity is, is, is sort of um, created by those teams. Like we identify with the team. We identify with the sport. And so much so that when they're victory, when, they have, when they're victorious, it becomes our victory, right? Uh, how many of you were really bummed last Sunday morning? And then are really excited this Sunday, or barely excited this Sunday morning. And because the Huskies lost and won. Like, and maybe it's too soon to talk about that. But um, we watch movies. We listen to a symphony or, or a play or a concert. In every case, that experience, we can celebrate. We can celebrate at a distance. We applaud. We offer flowers, encores. But for some reason, when a team gets on the field and, and, and does this thing, we begin to identify with it. So that victory becomes our victory. Um, so much so, like, when there's a monumental victory, remember the Super Bowl here? Um, there's, there's dancing in the streets. There's people are climbing, like, light poles and burning couches in the street. Everyone is victor- victorious. We even use that language. When the Seahawks or Sounders or Huskies win, what do we say? We won. I don't know how many of you were actually on the team that won, if you were, I'd love to talk to you because <laughs> you probably have a little more cachet than I do. But um, in, in spite of the fact we've done nothing to watch, and I know the 12th man thing, it's, it's a slick marketing campaign. I'm sorry. But you didn't do anything to win. You cheered. And this is, of course, it happens, what I'm saying is it happens every single Sunday. Every single Sunday. Even without, without football happening. Like, every time we gather here for worship... It's intended to be a sort of celebration, a reminder that the work done by Christ is done for us. As Paul has just said in Romans 5, verse 6, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. He died for you. Now, as I said before, when reading scriptures, pay attention to the, the prepositions because they often tell you they're often the most important thing. And the guiding preposition in Romans 5, just before Romans 6, is the word for. Christ coming to earth for us, dying for us, and winning the victory for us. Uh, to use the metaphor of sport, in that chapter, we're in the stands, watching, cheering, hoping, celebrating, right? In theological terms, this is called substitutionary or vicarious atonement. And I don't want to talk about whether you agree with that or not, but that means simply that someone did something else for you that you could not do. And yet, in some measure, we get to participate in the outcome of that something without participating in the process. That's all that substitutionary atonement's about. It's somebody did something for you, you couldn't do it, but you get to participate in it somehow. And so, good. So what? Like, what does that matter? Well, did you notice the the preposition switch in Romans 6 when Alicia read this? It's no longer for us, but with him, into him. And that is the crux of this passage. Do you not know, verse 3, that you were baptized into Christ? Not for Christ, into Christ. He didn't do it for you. You were baptized into Christ, into his death, buried with him through the baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you might live a new life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. 30 AD, crucified, and so were you. That's amazing. (laughs) So in Romans 5, we're in the stands. Romans 6, we've been invited down into the field. And, and though the, the victory has been won, Romans 5, 30 AD, victory won, there's no more to do, right? You don't need to save yourself. You can't. We're no longer spectators. 
We're invited down into the field, as Paul says in Romans 5, to be co-workers with God in the ongoing work of renewing the world. Co-laborers. We're, we're now part of the team. It's almost like God said, hey, I invited you down to the field to celebrate, and now here's a uniform, because <laughs> tomorrow there's another game. And so Paul understood this, that, that in the Roman church, the early Roman church, he and his compatriots in the church were in danger of merely taking this, this posture of being spectators, like sitting in the stands at the beginning of the game, just kind of eating their, their garlic fries. Yay! Yay, God! Thanks for doing all you did. He realized that, and in reflecting on the story of God, remembered that God had previously told countless others to get off their butts and get into the game. Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Esther, Jonah, Peter, Mary, and countless people. Get off the sofa. Get into the stands. Get onto the field. Get into the game. Because what he has been doing throughout history is, is earning us the right not to just be saved, but to be part, participant in salvation throughout history, to leave the stands forever and participate in what God's doing. Which has a couple of applications for our lives before I go to number two here. Number one, you are being freed from the, the boredom of spiritual consumerism. Like, get out of the stands onto the field. It involves you. Um, baptism involves you. It reminds you, in as much as we're aware that our lives are now one with Christ's life. Father, Son, Spirit. We're in union with God. We're part of God's story. And we're involved in that story. We're important. We're, we're necessary. Your voice, your presence here on Sundays, your story. Uh, Andrew Andrews told his story last Sunday. Your story is important. Your contribution to our community, whether you serve here on Sundays or beyond Sunday, is important. It's vital. There's not a single insignificant soul in this building today. Not a single one. That's what baptism reminds us of. All, it invites all of us into participation with God in his story of renewing the earth. He's inviting you into that. And, and so some of you have been baptized, and you need to remember that. You need to, as Luther did when he saw baptisms, remember, I'm baptized. I'm baptized. Not I was baptized. I'm baptized. I need to continue to press forward. You need to get out of the stands and into the field. You're, you're sitting back. You're like, every, somebody else will. Maybe you. And so the Spirit's pushing you a little bit and saying, get into the, get into the, off the stands. Others of you haven't been baptized yet. And it's not a magical thing that happens, but it's a way of declaring, like I said, remember, your commitment to the community and to the Lord. And you, you might need to step in and say, I want in. I want in. I want into God's story. I've been saying I believe for years. I want to declare my allegiance to God. I have a birth certificate. I want a baptism certificate. I want to say I, I belong. And so if that's you, come talk to me. Like, let's talk about your next step, because that's an important step, okay? So that's the first thing. The second is that you're saved from the burden of self-effort. For The first thing is boredom of spiritual consumerism. Second, the burden of self-effort. Notice all the language Paul is using. Our old self was crucified. We have been united. We were baptized. We were buried. It's all passive language. It happened. <laughs> it happened to you. So Christ wants to relieve you from the burden of trying to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. Like, this is one of the vital lessons here in Romans 6. You don't baptize yourself. You're not supposed to anyway. Someone does it to you. Just like you don't bury yourself. You can't. Technically, that would be a bad idea. Um, there's an undertaker. It's done by another person. And in the same way, life in Christ, death un- into Christ, is, isn't, isn't done. You don't do it to yourself. It's derived from Christ. It's done unto you. And here's what Eugene Peterson, who just died last week, said. He says, because we don't baptize ourselves... It's always something done to us in the name of the three-person God. 
The resurrection life by which we become our true selves is accepted as previous to and outside anything we can do. At that moment, we are no longer merely ourselves by ourselves. From then on, we are ourselves in the community of similarly baptized people. You are no longer yourself by yourself. You don't drive identity from God by yourself. And baptism is a reminder of that. And that's what we're being called to in Romans 6, that it redefines who we are. And if we receive it, just get in the game and allow God to have a claim on your life. Okay? So that's number one. Baptism um, tells you who you are. Okay? Here's the second thing. Union, okay? Which answers the question, where am I headed? And then it points the way to a new horizon. So and this is in verse 5. Where am I headed? And points the way to a new horizon. So united with him in a death like his... United with him in a resurrection like his, union, okay? And this word united is a very strange word um, in, in Greek. It's a horticultural word. It means to be engrafted into a root. So if you've ever engrafted a branch, we have some fruit trees in our backyard. And we bought this house from an older lady who had planted some apple trees and apricot trees and stuff. And I noticed a couple summers ago, there's this little branch grafted into a peach tree. And it's an apricot branch. Now, neither of them have ever produced any fruit. Don't know if they ever will. But it's like grafted in, and I don't know where the apricot tree went, but they had taken time to splice it off. I don't even know how to do it. And then cut it in, and then tape it up, and it's growing. It, it's got leaves, hopefully someday, fruit. And, and that's what union is really about. It's, it's a metaphor that's trying to say our lives have been inserted into the very roots of Christ's life. Inserted. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have your life inserted into Christ's life? Well, look at verse 5 again. We've been united to the past, the present, and the future of Jesus Christ. That's the summary of it. Which is to say that um, Jesus' past is your past, and his future is also your future. That's what it means to be united. So great, Jesus' past is my past. So what? What does that mean? Again, just like I was telling a sports metaphor, what is that supposed to mean? Well, a great kind of correlation to this, Paul says it differently but similarly, is in Colossians 3. Um, a slightly different nuance in the same thing. He says this in verses 1 to 4 of Colossians 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on thing above, things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears you will appear with him in glory, okay? So it's all right there. You died with him, you're raised with him, you're seated at the right hand of God with him, and you're going to appear with him in glory. And then you're like, that makes absolutely no sense, Jack. Like, that doesn't help me. Can you give me another sports analogy? Uh, No, but let me give you something different. Imagine somebody who's become rich, like started a tech company. Some of you have tech companies. Discovered a cure for a life-threatening illness, um, patented a new device. You know, my grandfather patented the finger jointer, which is a lumbering thing. And anyway, so he made lots of money off that, that my dad inherited, and I'm not hoping that my dad dies, but I might inherit. That would be cool. How did my grandfather, or any of you who, uh, no, sorry. <laughs> I love you, Dad. <laughs> oh, gosh. Some of you know my family story, so that's a little too close to home. But so how did my grandfather or anybody else become rich? through a, a mixture of persistence and genius and, like, some dumb luck, right? Just the right place at the right time. 
Now suppose my grandfather marries my grandmother, Alice. They get married. They have children. They have children. They put all their wealth into a will. One day they die. How do all those riches come to their children? How did my dad get rich? How, did, how would I in that, in that equation? Through legal union. That's it. I'm a member of the family. My grandfather put in his will. That's it. I, had, I did nothing. I don't even know how to chop wood. That's for sure. I've tried a few times. It's by grace, just like that. And, and this is telling you that you and I are just like those children who, who Jesus did everything necessary. Remember this idea of substitutionary atonement. Everything necessary in life and in death to secure your salvation. Everything. And because of that work, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a place of prestige and honor, a place of triumph. He did the, the, the thing necessary. What's more, this is what Colossians 3 is saying, what Romans 6 is saying, what's true of Jesus is now true of you. What Christ did, his work, where he's seated, his triumph, everything true of Jesus, everything true of Jesus is true of each one of you. If you just put faith in Jesus, his place with God, his, his past, his identity, it's all true of him, it's now true of you. So the determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past. No longer where you've been, what you've done, what you've said, but Christ's past. Which is to say the Father accepts you, delights in you, and sees you as having the same beauty, the same greatness, the same glory as the Son. This makes sense to you? He sees you as being as free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from sin as Christ. He was sinless. That's the first thing. What, that's what union means, that you've been united to Christ's past. That's who you are. Now, you've also been united to Christ's future. Notice in verse 5, Paul says, we will certainly be united with his resurrection, not just his death. And do you see that word certainly? This is an important word. Guess what certainly means in Greek? Certainly. <laughs> it doesn't say conditionally. Now, if you really live a good life, come to church on Sunday, take some like mad, wicked, wicked notes, Give, serve, it doesn't say anything like that. It also doesn't say maybe, like Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. Maybe there's a chance some of you got that one. So some of you are Dumb and Dumber fans. There's one person here, Zach Maz, who can quote the entire movie, and Zach's not here right now. That's crazy. But anyway, so it doesn't say maybe. It says certainly, without question, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will be united with Christ's resurrection. Period. Unequivocally. There is an indissoluble connection the moment you put your faith in Christ. The moment. doesn't matter if you were a young child, an older adult, on your deathbed. There's an indissoluble connection that moment with Christ's past as well as his future. A future by faith that you are connected to now. Right now. So, in other words, Christianity, as Keller says somewhere, promises time travel. (laughs) Which is not like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but like the future of God coming into your present, like the presence of the future coming to you. So what does that mean for Christ's present to come into your life now? Um, Well, there's this fascinating Greek word that I've talked about before I'll I'll talk about briefly is this word palingenesia. It's a philosophical word. So actually, Critchley talks a little bit about it. It actually means regenesis. Um, Like there's the word in there, genesis, creation, right? Palingenesia. And it came from Stoic philosophy, so when he's talking about the Stoics in there. And they believe that history was this endless cycle. Like, 
things would get bad, worse, 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 and we're seeing it now, worse, worse, worse. If Stoics were alive today, they'd say there's going to be this purging, this fire, great fire, like cleansing fire, and everything's going to be purified, and then we're going to be on this different trajectory, renewal. Everything's going to be new. History's going to start over. And that's this cycle called the palingenesia, rebirth. So birth, rebirth, fire, decay, fire, rebirth. You know, does that make sense? And it just goes on forever. So question for you is, what do we believe as Christians? I mean, that kind of sounds like Christianity, doesn't it? Like that place where Jesus says, I'm making all things new. That kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Is that what we believe? And actually, no, that's not what we believe. <laughs> Here's, listen to uh, what Jesus, he uses this word a couple times. Matthew 19, 28 is one. And he deliberately uses it in the most astonishing way. He says, at, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man renewals the word palingenesia, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who's lost houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, fields, whatever, will receive 100 times more as much for eternal life. For many who were last will be first, and the first will be last. So here's the deal. The important detail, there's a lot of words there, of what Jesus says about palingenesias. He doesn't say palingenesias. He says, at the renewal of all things... Period. There's only one. It's not an endless cycle for all eternity, getting worse, 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 better, 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 worse, 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 worse. There's a single point, in other words, in which all of history is flowing, uh, in which everything will be purged, everything will become new, everything will dance, everything will flourish, and creation will be made whole. There's one single point. And so the question is, wow, (laughs) when's that? Like, I want to be part of that. Because it, does, it, it kind of feels today like we're not going there, doesn't it? Um, and some of you are experiencing very personal things that are hard. And it's not going there. So when's that going to happen? And Jesus offers it. He says, on the Son of Man's glorious throne. That's when it's going to happen. Which means, literally, if you think about it, when did the Son of Man sit on his glorious throne? Think about it. For a moment. There's obviously this vision in our heads of Jesus in Revelation, sitting on some sort of big golden throne, angels all around him. We're going to be there too. But if you think about this in terms of, of Jesus' actual life, the Son of Man, when he was crucified, I, I, and I don't know if you shared this last week. Did you from, from the Gospels, Silas? Okay, good. I'm not going to go down this too far, but Jesus was crucified on a cross, but above his head, what does it say in all the known languages of the world? king of the Jews. And what's on his head, friends? A crown. And I don't know if you know this about the cross, but he is hanging there, but there's a seat there. And so some people have said the moment of his crucifixion, and he even tells the guy on one one side of him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, in other words, I'm going to sit on my throne. I'm, I'm sitting on my throne. It's a place of death, a place of loss, a place of absolute, what the world says is failure. People are mocking him, spitting on him. And he says, I'm on my glorious throne. So it doesn't happen thousands of years from now. It's happened. And Jesus is inviting you into that future now. He's promising time travel. In as much as you'll die with him, you'll live with him. Under the joy of that place, the loving rule of God, the king of the universe, who made everything perfect through that sacrificial act, the world can dance. Um, Everything can be as it was supposed to be. The universe can be healed. And that's amazing if you think about it because it communicates to us 
that Jesus is more than just a buddy, a spiritual buddy, or a religious leader, or a moral influencer. He's a cosmic healer. He can turn a, a, a graphic and gross and horrific event like crucifixion into the beginning of renewal, the, 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 the time when we want to be uh, living with God. He's turned, it, he's turned that equation all the way around. Now, what's even more amazing is this word shows up one more time in the Bible, this palingenesia. It's in Titus 3, verse 5. And it's a, I know how many of you have read Titus. It's an amazing book. I think it's like two pages long. And here's what Paul says there. He says that Jesus saved us not because of the righteous things we did, but through the washing of rebirth, and there's baptism, a little nod toward baptism, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that word rebirth, that word rebirth is actually palingenesia, and it's totally inappropriate considering what I just said to you about cosmic rebirth and renewal and crucifixion. So if you put this all together, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, the minute you become a Christian, the Spirit comes in your life, you're baptized, there's union. That union connects you to Christ's past, as well as this future, the presence of the future, the power of the future enters into your life. And so when people say, like they were saying in Rome, man, it's, if it's all grace, I can't do anything. Why not just live how I want to live? What Paul would say, what I'm saying today is, you have the slightest idea what's happened to you, whose life is in you. As Richard said earlier this week to me, following Christ doesn't mean you get a, a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. It, it doesn't, it's not just some cosmic pardon that you got. It means nothing less than union with, with all of who Christ is, all what he's done. It means that you're irrevocably united with his past, connected to his future, going where he's going. And if, he's, if you're connected there, this means because he's in your life, all of him, uh, everything in your life is going to be different. Everything in your life has to be different. Everything's going to change. In other words, your goals have to change. Uh, I have goals for the year. I had a goal this last year of riding a, a bunch of miles on my bike. And uh, I never once said, God, is that your goal for me? <laughs> Just did it. And, uh, and I, I wonder how that would look. God, what's your goal for me this year with respect to my family, fitness, work? Your goals have to change. Your identity totally transformed. Because the presence of the future, think of this, the presence of the future, Christ crucified, risen, is entering into your life. I mean, that's mind-blowing if you think about it. How would your identity change if you knew that? Uh, you get a whole new basis for identity, the presence of the future coming into you. And if this is a lordship thing, king, <laughs> and since, since that's a lordship thing, uh, this means Jesus is not just some supernatural helper for you, but somebody you submit your life to. And the implication of that means that I have to, I'm living my life, God, now with no conditions. You're king. You're a crucified king, but you're still king. So you live by saying, God, not my will. Not your will. My, not my goals. Your goals. Not my expectations or, or for a particular outcome or, or passions even or longings. Yours. Um, where do you want to take me today, Lord? Where do you want to go today? Um, where are you calling me today, God? Uh, what are you trying to teach me today, God? I'm open. I want to learn. We're being invited challenge to drop conditions around our lives, around how they go, to live without condition. That's what union means. It points the way to a new horizon. Here's the last thing I want to say, and I'll go really quickly on this one, because I know I've been going for a while. Contemplation. This is a weird word. Uh, 
It's kind of squishy, so let me give you the phrase. Contemplation answers the question, what can I hope for? And it's the foundation for a new hope. This is verses 8 to 11. Let me read those again because it was a few minutes ago that we read. Uh, Verses 8 to 11. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. So we talked about that. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So here's what contemplation is. The word consider. I want to focus really quickly on that. It's also translated the word reckon, count, in the J.B. Phillips look upon. It's one of my favorite words in the entire New Testament, and here's why. It's a math word. Uh, it's an accounting word. So for all the accountants in the room, this is your day. It means to tally up, calculate, compute. So in this context, it means to do this with respect to the ways that death, Christ's death, is intersecting with your life. In other words, computer calculates sort of like a graph, one of those graphs with an X and Y, or a spreadsheet. The intersection between Christ's death and my life. All the ways Christ's death connects with my life. If you can imagine that in a spreadsheet. And not in a masochistic way, like I hear this all the time. I'm suffering for Jesus. Yay for me. Yay for God. I'm carrying my cross. Like, not that, but as a way of appropriating. Remember, I said Christ's death is alive in you appropriating that, all he's done for you. Not just taking for granted that Jesus died 2,000 years ago and that you're living 2,000 years later. Not just taking that for granted. Thank you, Jesus. But considering, counting, computing all the ways he died, not just on Good Friday, (laughs) but considering, counting, computing all the ways he died and how that death intersects with your life now. Doing an inventory of your life. Just a spiritual discipline around that. As Peterson said again, again, he died last week. He says, Jesus' death is real death. It's a historical fact. Jesus died. Nothing in Jesus' life is is as meticulously documented as his death. Dead and buried, as our creed says. A death every bit as physical as each one of yours will be. His heart stopped. His brain stopped. There was a precipitous drop in his body temperature. He was dead. (laughs) But there was more. Listen to this. Far more than the cessation of his vital signs. Salvation was accomplished. A divine event was enacted. His death, a willed sacrificial death, was an offering for the death-dealing sins of the world. As Paul says, a death that conquered death. It was the death of death. This is a mystery. (laughs) And it's a mystery we're not supposed to just look at out of curiosity like, hmm, interesting. But like, like I said earlier, participate in. Join, inhabit, consider, count, compute all the ways in which Christ's death connects and deals with, conquers your death. All of you are experiencing death right now. I know I asked the question earlier, how many of you are thinking about death actively? And only a few of you, a few of us. I don't, I don't think about death that much. I'm talking a lot about it, but I don't think about my own that much. And we're being invited to think about Christ's death. And I am experiencing death in all kinds of ways. All of us are. And I'm not just talking about physical things. So here's a few things for you to think about this coming week and as you prepare to come to communion. Because this is a celebration of not just Christ's life, but his death. Here's number one. Contemplate this week the ways in which you've died. This is an act of worship. 
How have you died? Your old self. Like, consider. Contemplate. I mean, if you think about the ways you've died, who you were, who you are, that should or will lead to nothing short of gratitude and worship. Like, thank you, Christ, for your victory in my life. Thanks that I used to be a complete knucklehead, (laughs) and now I'm a little bit less of a knucklehead. (laughs) Thank you that you've pulled me out of shame and and depression and loneliness and placed me in community with people that can honor me and love me and hold me. Consider the ways you've died. But also, here's number two, consider the ways in which you are dying. Uh, Where am I dying? Like, is it this diagnosis? Is it in this relationship? Is it a death to my dreams about my future? Is it my hope? How am I dying? Like, consider that. And as much as you connect that with Christ's death, because he did die, that becomes nothing short of prayer. So the first is worship. That's nothing short of prayer. God, help me in my time of need. Bring your death to bear on my death. It's real, God. I am suffering. Be merciful unto me. Be merciful to the world for which you died. You died for this world, God. You said it. The world is dying. There are people on the streets around us that are dying from exposure to the elements, addiction, um, abuse, all these things. God, be merciful to us. Uh, Christ, there's death. Bring life. You You are life. Bring life. That's number two. Where are you dying? Finally, where do you need to die? So where did you die? Where are you dying? Where do you need to die? It might be that there's something in your life that needs to die, friends. Your expectations, your dreams, the way you insist on how other people act. This is a problem for me. (laughs) It might be something dark within you, shame, sin. What ways might be God, God calling you to freedom? He wants freedom for you. And not just a little bit of freedom, but absolute freedom. And for that to happen, like Critchley said, Paul says, you have to die. You've got to die. Die to sin. It's the only way to freedom. That's how Israel did it, through the Red Sea, which is like a death. That's how Jesus did it, on the cross. And that's going to be true of you if you want freedom in Christ. So might we consider those things as we come to this table this morning, um, which is, like I said, a celebration. I'll invite you guys up. A celebration of both Christ's Victory over death, but also is death. You're going to, to take bread, which is a symbol of Christ's broken body. Broken. Broken by nails. Broken by abusive people. Broken by powers and principalities. You're going to dip it in a cup, which is blood. Christ shed blood. He shed his blood for you. He died. Might you meditate on that a little this morning? Not in a morbid way, but just saying, God, thank you that that's part of my story. And also, because you were victorious, you walked out of the grave with scars, but you walked out. There is victory for me. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be this year. It might, it might be down the road a little bit, but I can claim it. I can claim it in you. And so I appropriate your death. I appropriate your life. That's what we do this morning. Um, so let me take a moment to pray. God, thank you for the chance to uh, walk with each other into your death through this communion meal. Thank you that your presence inhabits these simple elements of bread and juice, uh, that all of us who come by faith can experience your death at a level, maybe not even cognitively, but we know that you are in these elements, and so you spiritually uh, will bring, bring yourself to bear to us. But open our hearts, God, to what you have for us uh, as we meditate on death, as we celebrate your victory over death. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here. Pray in Christ's name we say, amen.